Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Jason Jenkins. Last month marked the 50th anniversary of relations between Japan and China. And despite the ebb and flow of geopolitical tension in the region, the two nations share a lot more common ground than you might think. Beyond historical and economic ties, the people in both countries today often enjoy the same music, movies, and manga. In fact, there are many Japanese bands, actors, and artists that have become stars in China. But as Hollywood and the global entertainment industry has discovered, keeping your fan base engaged and on your side requires navigating a minefield of taboo topics. Culture writer Patrick St. Michel is a regular guest on Deep Dive, and he recently wrote about the challenges Japan faces in the Chinese market. Patrick, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with a short history lesson. Japan and China have been exchanging culture for centuries, but let's focus on the past 50 years or so. Who broke down the door for Japanese artists and entertainers in China? So the story starts in 1978 with the Treaty of Peace and Friendship that the two countries forged together. That allowed an exchange of pop culture and entertainment, primarily with Japan bringing its own cultural exports into mainland China. Mainland China, of course, coming out of the Cultural Revolution, they're sort of rebuilding at that point, starting anew, if you will. So early on, the first name that really pops in China is a famous idol singer slash actress, Momoe Yamaguchi. In Japan, she's has all sorts of celebrated songs and starred in a plethora of TV shows. And one of those shows, a drama called, in English, Red Suspicion, that really connected with viewers in mainland China. It was one of the first Japanese dramas to be aired on basic television channels, and the story really just connected with people. And then you also had actors like Ken Takakura come over and make a splash. Uh, right. Uh, Takakura died in, uh, I think, 2014, but uh, Western audiences probably know him from films like Black Rain with Michael Douglas or Mr. Baseball with Tom Selleck. Oh, Mr. Baseball, a film that just celebrated, I believe, its 30th anniversary. I hope everybody took some time to revisit a Hollywood classic. But before Takakura was playing a MPB manager in the early 90s, in China, he was getting a lot of attention for more hard-boiled roles, whether as like a detective or more adjacent to the world of crime in films like Manhunt, uh, the English title. Those movies, beyond just being super entertaining, especially to audiences who were just getting acquainted with this type of big screen entertainment, it also helped introduce the idea of what being masculine was to China and even creeping in ideas of what individual freedom could be. Ah, uh, yes, individual freedom. But uh, what other impacts did uh, this wave of culture have? At this point in China's history, the country is first encountering a lot of concepts that to Western nations or just any sort of country not going through a sort of communist revolution were common at the time. So Japan was kind of presenting an idea of not just entertainment, but what, for example, fine dining is supposed to be. What does a concert look like? 
it's all these ideas of how culture looks and even feels, I would say. And Japan being one of the first countries to come in with their entertainment, this is before the United States really finds a way in. They're able to sort of show what all of this is and introduce it. And then, of course, there's manga and anime. Let's dive into that a little bit and tell us their impact in China. Based on interviews I did with people who grew up in China, whether it was in the 80s, sort of the heyday of the arrival of all this Japanese entertainment, or even more like 90s kids, anime and manga had just a massive impact on everyone is the vibe I got. Starting in the 80s, there's a small arrival of these sorts of pieces of entertainment from Japan, and some would be broadcast on Chinese television. So everyone's, that's kind of like what you're exposed to. But there's also, of course, an entire like black market of bootleg copies of these shows from Japan. Yes. And this was the era of VHS tapes, but uh, soon the internet came in and then we had Billy Billy. Tell us about that. Billy Billy marks a real epoch shift in how Chinese and Japanese entertainment intermingles. So when the site starts in the 2000s, it's a video site somewhat similar to YouTube. That's kind of the most like straightforward comparison. But in reality, it has way more in common with the Japanese video site Nico Nico Doga, which most notably allowed like comments to kind of scroll on the screen. So like you had to see what people were saying about these videos. Billy Billy started as a tribute slash message board slash community center for fans of Japanese Vocaloid music, which is uh, songs created using a singing synthesizer software. You probably know it because Hatsune Miku is the most famous character associated with it. That's its origin story. So it's just kind of like online otaku central for Chinese netizens. You mentioned a similarity between Billy Billy and YouTube, uh, which is pretty easy to see when you look at them side by side. But uh, one big difference is that when Billy Billy started, it wasn't really open to the public as YouTube was. Is that correct? That's right. Maybe owing to its otaku nature, its nerdy origin, you had to pass a hundred question quiz to post on Billy Billy. What kind of questions? Mostly anime questions or even just Japanese pop culture. Like, uh, here's a good one for you, Jason. What planet was Ultraman from? Hold on. Let me pull up my phone and look up on Wikipedia. Oh, no. (laughs) Billy Billy will stop you from that rampant cheating. Anyway, that's a sign of just how niche and closed off and really quite exclusive Billy Billy was at the time. But as China's economic fortunes and ambitions grew in the 2010s, Billy Billy itself opened up to try to take advantage of this, and the site as it had existed changed drastically. Okay, now we've covered the past. Now let's look at today's entertainment landscape. What are some recent examples of Japanese culture hitting it big in China? Japanese anime in particular has really enjoyed financial and cultural success in the country in recent years. That ranges from classic Studio Ghibli movies like My Neighbor Totoro getting re-released in the late 2010s to huge box office draws 
to newer works like the anime Your Name, which was extremely popular and even had the effect of boosting Japanese rock band Rad Wimps, who did the music for that, to mainstream status in the country and giving them the chance to perform at festivals, which have become a big place for Japanese rock bands, both indie and mainstream, to enter the Chinese market. So if all these things are so popular, it would seem that it would be easy for them to get a foothold in the market, but it's just not as simple as that, is it? Modern China can be quite, shall we say, sensitive about certain topics and viewpoints. <laughs> I'd say that's an understatement. Yeah, as I'm sure is quite well known just how uh, Western entertainment enters the country as well. It's been well documented. The Chinese government has to approve of any entertainment that is sort of broadcast to its citizens. So given the rocky history between Japan and China, there's an amount of scrutiny that is applied to things entering the country from there. And of course, if you bring up topics that are already going to cause problems, whether they be Taiwan, Hong Kong, just to name a few, honestly, and you don't even have to mention them in your art if you kind of just tweet about them or mention them in some other outlets, even in a non-controversial way, you will get in trouble from Chinese censors. Yes, uh, I think Hollywood has also discovered that, and we don't have time to get into all the the top guns and red dawns of Hollywood, but uh, there's definitely some sensitive topics you can't talk about. But it's not just political hot topics, is it? You write in your piece that Beijing tends to crack down on overly sexualized anime, for example. Yeah, this is a recent development, especially over the past year and a half. China has edited a lot of popular anime series, uh, most notably Demon Slayer, extremely popular worldwide at this point, to sort of cut back on the figures displayed by female characters in the series. You also had a big incident that didn't only apply to Japanese pop culture, but had a massive impact on Korean pop culture, for example, and even domestic Chinese culture, where the government wanted to crack down on sort of unmasculine men more feminine presenting men you would kind of find in a K-pop style group, let's say, an idol outfit. And that has huge impacts for Japan's idol market, which has a lot of, you know, Johnny's and Associates groups that want to break into the China market. And now they have to kind of rethink how they do that. Now let's talk a little more just to get into the nuts and bolts of uh, censorship in China. Walk us through it a little bit. What do Japanese artists and bands have to go through? How easy is it? And how do they navigate that system? I'm most familiar with the music side of this. So in general, whether a Japanese artist wants to play a festival, wants to release a CD, wants to maybe perform on some sort of live stream, they usually have to submit the songs that they will feature in advance, and they have to include translated lyrics for government officials. And the officials will go over it and decide whether that's okay or no good, get that out of the set. And we talked about how we always think of political controversies. But in reality, Chinese censors are looking for anything that kind of goes against their entire philosophy. A great example of this I learned about was the Japanese band Sekai no Awari. They have a song called Anti-Hero. It's a pretty like 
all things considered, like a pretty cheesy song where the central hook is just like, don't follow the rules, like be an anti-hero. It's like real like preteen rebellion. But you can't even introduce the idea of not following the rules in China. So they can't perform that song at all. So we've been talking about the government forces involved in censorship, but that's not the only problem that artists face in China. In your piece, you talk a lot about the patriots, as they're called, who are almost like cultural vigilantes that uh, push their own societal norms. Can you explain a little more about that? Sure. So netizens in China are just as focused on finding wrongdoings committed by non-Chinese entertainers and artists who are trying to enter the market, or even ones who aren't entering the market, honestly. A great example of this was on a music reality competition called Chuang 2021. There were a bunch of Japanese artists taking part in that, which really shows kind of like the ambitions of Japanese music companies. One of them was a group called Intersection from the prominent entertainment company AVAX. They were doing really well on the show. They were getting a lot of attention, a lot of buzz. But then people online found not the current version of the AVEX website, but an older version where it listed like select your region. It listed Taiwan as a separate region, which, as you could imagine, is is no go with the one China policy. So suddenly everyone turns against them and it becomes like, how dare you do this? get off the show, (laughs) AVEX, what have you done? AVEX handled it in a way where they could kind of move on and it was okay. But this kind of pressure from internet users where all pop culture flows in 2022, that like really has a huge impact on what gets into the country, what gets attention. There were several examples I thought were interesting. We talked about one before we started recording about uh, table tennis. Could you mention that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So last year at the Tokyo Olympics, the gold medal in mixed pairs table tennis went to the Japanese team. Big moment for Japan. It was, I want to say, the first gold for a Japanese it was, table yeah. tennis. There you go. Yeah. So huge deal. People were excited. On Twitter, people were celebrating, tweeting, hooray, Japan did it. And that included a lot of like idols and entertainers kind of just expressing a very generic, woohoo, we won. Problem is, they beat a prominent Chinese table tennis team to capture the gold medal. And on Chinese internet, it was kind of like, oh, this was rigged against us. Like, this is shady. So even by celebrating the success of the Japanese team, a lot of artists, I was told, were suddenly like victims of online harassment of just like, how dare you do this? It was rigged, blah, 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 blah. And then their chances to sort of make inroad into the country takes a hit. So like, it can totally be something you're not even thinking about. If you really want to be in China, you have to always be thinking about like, is this going to make them angry? Yeah, and not just the government, but the fans themselves. Your your fans. Your potential fans, at least. And of course, that also applies to Billy Billy itself, which is every bit as powerful. People I talked to were almost more afraid of Billy Billy, like making them angry than the government, because they've become a legitimate operation online, and it's one of the top places to go for any entertainment. And if you get on their bad side, they'll be like, okay, you can't have an official channel, and then you just don't have a shot in the market. 
We would be remiss if we didn't mention the other pop superpower in the region, Korea. Let's talk about K-pop's role here. How is K-pop doing in China? It's complicated. Right now, it's probably doing a little better, but something that is very different between the K-pop industry and, for example, J-pop, Japanese entertainment, is for a little bit there, Korean entertainment was banned in China. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like uh, 2016, 2017-ish. This was after the United States installed the THAAD missile defense system in Uh South Korea. uh And in retaliation for allowing this to be put in their country, China did a ban of sorts on all South Korean entertainment. So not just K-pop, but also movies, dramas, sort of all the major foundations of the current Korean wave. Right, right. It's improved a bit more recently, and you can see, like, for example, Korean movies started to screen in China again recently. But it is interesting, given how hyped up Korean entertainment is globally, that China is one of the few places where that didn't really reach the same level exactly. Fans could still find a way to support their favorite acts, of course, but it was different than the rest of the world. That really surprises me. I, I thought for sure you were going to tell me that Korea was eating Japan's lunch on the, you know, at least in the pop music landscape, because I think of K-pop just being this global phenomenon where J-pop may be something regional. Are there any particular differences in the approach or the style that may have uh, played a role here? What K-pop does really well, and it translates especially well in the Chinese market, is it's great at creating personalities or even brands, if you want to go in that direction. You can look at a group like Blackpink and a member like Lisa, originally from Thailand. She has 9 million followers on Weibo, which is akin to Twitter, for example. And she appears on some of those super popular singing reality shows as a judge, which allows her personality to come through more. It helps introduce her main group further. All around, it just turns Blackpink and Lisa into a sort of household name in the country. Japan has the opposite problem. Lots of individual songs will break through, whether that's through anime or some other perhaps a TikTok trend, a Douyin trend, as they call it there. And it will kind of become omnipresent, but the artists themselves can't really turn that into more sustained success. There's just these bits and pieces scattered across pop culture, which are still hits, but the sustainability of it, building something bigger, hasn't truly happened yet. Why don't we talk a little more about the state of uh, Japanese music abroad? What are some trends or other venues that J-pop and other artists are trying to get their foot in? It's interesting because China has actually served as a good testing ground, perhaps, or it offered a hint at how Japanese music and entertainment really could go further outside into the world. I would say J-pop in particular is having the same issue globally as it is in China. In recent years, there's been a lot of isolated hits, whether it's through TikTok trends or something we're seeing this year. There's a lot of anime songs that are going massive on like Spotify charts. 
And it's really neat seeing how those get embraced by users all over the world and turn into these sort of online hits. But we haven't seen any artists themselves rise up to that international level, really. It's still very much like, here's a hit, here's a dance trend, here's a weird algorithm-generated surprise. But the challenge is figuring out how to do that next. And I, I do know that Japanese labels are trying to, both in China and abroad, figure out how do we build a sustainable industry out of this globally. Just to clarify, it sounds like that's something from TikTok where songs get picked up. I mean, there was a city pop resurgence a while back, and that was completely TikTok, right? It was somebody played a song, and then it was copied and repeated over millions and billions of people. Is that a fair assessment of how some of these uh, songs are getting popular? Oh, definitely. That's how all music's getting popular now. And Japanese music is just benefiting from that. Uh, That ties into actually the biggest change in the Japanese music industry, which is companies that were once reluctant to share things digitally have finally opened up to that with the pandemic kind of accelerating that process. And once something's out in the world, like it's up to the users to make it huge, like it's out of your hands. So that's been really interesting to see. The other side of that, though, is just as anime becomes sort of a mainstream force globally. Like, having a song attached to a really popular anime series, that's enough at this point to actually boost certain things up the charts as well. Though you will see a lot of, like, TikTok crossover with people making, like, fan tributes to their favorite Attack on Titan character, and then that pushes it even further. Going the other way, how is Chinese entertainment doing in Japan? Right now, it's very fledgling, I would say. China has long been trying to figure out how to export its pop culture to the world. And for the most part, it hasn't had much success. However, there's a few prominent examples. And in Japan, in particular, the video game Genshin Impact, that one has been a massive hit, not just in Japan, but globally. But it also is a great example of how China has learned from Japanese pop culture It's a game where everyone looks like an anime character. Anime is clearly the artistic basis of the design here. And it takes a lot of cues from popular anime and popular Japanese video games and sort of finds a new angle on it and sells it back to the country that introduced these concepts in the first place. Near the end of your piece, you write about Detective Chinatown 3, a Chinese movie that's shattered a lot of box office records at home, but it's it's really an ode to Japanese pop culture in many ways. Tell us a little about that. As the name implies, Detective Chinatown 3 is the third installment in the extremely popular Detective Chinatown series, a kind of Chinese take on the smart cop, dumb cop dynamic so prevalent in Hollywood. The third version, which came out a couple years ago at this point, it's set entirely in Tokyo. And besides being kind of a fever dream celebration of tourism in the capital pre-pandemic, it's also full of homages to Japanese pop culture. You have nods to anime, you have references to J-horror, you have even moments that take you back to those 80s hard-boiled Yakuza films we were talking about at the very start that kind of introduced the whole concept of masculinity to the country. It's a really loving tribute to Japan's pop culture and how it's 
been absorbed by people in mainland China over the past 50 years. Even with all the difficulties that Japanese artists have had getting into the Chinese market, Detective Chinatown 3 is a really good example of how much of an impact they have when they do find a way to break through. Patrick, thank you so much for coming back on to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, special thanks to Patrick St. Michel for another encore set on Deep Dive. If you want to learn more about the Japanese arts and entertainment scene or read more of Patrick's work, we'll put links in the show notes. In the headlines, Economic Revitalization Minister Daishiro Yamagiwa has resigned over his connections to the controversial Unification Church. Also in the Japan Times this week, Will Fee breaks down Japan's new My Number personal identification card system. Gabriel Dominguez outlines what signs would indicate a future Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And Tomoko Otake reports on the recent Femtech Expo in Tokyo. For these stories and more, please consider a subscription to the Japan Times. This episode was edited by Dave Cortez, our theme song is by 4L, and our outro song is by Oscar Boyd. See you next week, and Patsukare Sama. <laughs>